Now on Documentary on News Talk, producers Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle explore life before and after the evacuations and depopulation of Ireland's islands, particularly the Donegal Islands of Rutland, Inishfree and Aran Moore, in Leaving the Island. My father is from a small island called Rutland, about a mile off the Donegal coast. No one lives there now, there are no roads and no ferry, and you have to go there by a small boat. His was the last generation to live on the island because, like most islanders, his family left for the mainland in the 50s and 60s. My name is Manus, Manus Boyle. Um, I was born in Rutland, 1941, July 41. The island was still fairly busy that time. You know, there was, there was a good few people where we thought there was a lot of people about it at that time when we were small, you know. About 12 families, I suppose, you know. 30, 40 people now, you know. But in my father's time, it was a different story. There was up to 400 people working it, working uh, during the heron fishing at the winter, in the winter time there, you know. So he's seen a hell of a downfall. But there had been, I suppose, about 30 people. From the early 50s then, 51, 52, and all the families started to leave. In 1954, the school had closed. Lovely place to grow up, plenty of freedom right beside the sea where we were not 30, 40 yards from the sea where we were born. Offhand now, many was at school when I started, probably 18 or 20. People were all self-sufficient. The only, the only thing they, they really bought that time was flour and stuff like that. Everything else was, was uh, produced on the island, you know, plenty of fish, plenty of poultry, potatoes, vegetables, all that stuff, you know. Um, there was a lot of work. There was a lot of heavy work back then, but people seemed to enjoy it. All worked together. We had to go five, six miles from Burton Port on the mainland to cut turf. But families went together that are mine today and yours tomorrow. Well, that's the way island life had to be. Every, you know, everybody had to work together. I've seen arguments, of course, you've seen arguments. I've never seen a fight on it or people, re- you know, really falling out. Couldn't afford to. The light was a, a paraffin oil lamp. And I remember the day well we got our first telly. The, there was a, a piece put on the wall, a wee bit of timber, a wee bit of four by one and a half or something. The wall had to be pegged to hang this telly on. And Joe Duffy was his name, he was from his free, he's gone now. He was the joiner. <laughs> and he put up the telly and we had the brightest light on the island until everybody else got tellies. Our teacher had, uh, what did they call them, an Aladdin lamp or something. She was better off than everybody else, of course. But um, we had the tilly lamp, and then the power 
the electricity came in three, four years before we left. It came to Ironmore, it had to come through, it had to come through Rutland to get to go into Ironmore. And of course the electricity was was, uh, was a big thing. We did have a radio. A radio was, was a pie with a wet battery, a wet battery and a dry battery. And when the wet battery, it was only put on, it was used for the news and football. Well, Ireland final was a big day. We opened the kitchen window up, radios put on, everybody stood outside, the people who couldn't get in stood outside listening to listening to that male O'Hare and all Ireland final. That's, that's the way it was. There was another radio in the, in the island at the time, but they wouldn't put on the all Ireland final. And then the electricity came in and we got an electric radio. In 1946, one of the most important pieces of our national planning was put underway when work was begun on rural electrification. This is a scheme to bring the benefits of power to the large but scattered communities living outside the towns and villages. A large undertaking, it involves the raising of one and a half million poles to carry thousands of miles of cable. Working parties are constantly in action, pushing the job to completion in all parts of the country. We're away with it then, you know, that was it. Before I left, one of the houses got, a, got the first television. As I have said, I am privileged in being the first to address you on our new service, television air. I must admit that sometimes when I think of television and radio and their immense power, I feel somewhat afraid. Dear McFarter, I'm Professor of Modern Irish History at the University College Dublin. And I've been researching the history of the offshore islands for the last couple of years and that's led to a book called On the Edge. I think it's personal and professional. I was very interested in the area of West Kerry where my grandfather would have been from originally just outside Dingle and obviously that's a part of the country that's associated in particular with the, the Blasket Islands and it's one of my earliest childhood memories is, is going to the Blasket Islands. But professionally then I'm interested in them because if the islands are fascinating, it's because they really are Ireland to the power of two, in the sense that we're fascinated by Ireland as an island off the west coast of Europe. And here you have these islands off that island again. And they did seem to me to illustrate an awful lot of the themes in social history that I was interested in. People living on the margins, people living on the edge. One of the things that struck me in, in the late 19th century is that some observers, including those in the congested districts boards who were compiling reports on the islanders, they actually felt the islanders in many respects were better off. That they uh, had a, in many ways, that they had a way of life that was healthier than the mainland. They were very self-sufficient, they could be very industrious, um, that they had um, an exceptional capacity for self-reliance, that their uh, their minds and their deftness were honed to a remarkable degree because of the way they had to live and the way they had to read the sea and the sense of, of community and the bonds between them. The history of the islands is not just one of misery. And of course we need to confront the realities of poverty and, and lack of state support. But there's also an awful lot of positive narratives uh, around the islands. Um, and it surprised me the extent of those positive narratives. Now it makes sense when you think about it, uh, if they are thrown on their own uh, reserves, uh, but there's also 
the strong sense they have of their unique stature and their unique sense of place. Many of them would say, we are going out to the mainland. They're not going into the mainland. They don't see the mainland like that. You'll hear that noise there, you know, the noise of sea and, 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 and birds. And you, you woke up in the morning and, and by the noise you could tell how heavy the sea was, you know, whether it was good or bad. The only time the mainland, uh, they went to the mainland was to, um, you know, we'd maybe do a wee bit of shopping, just say, for stuff that you couldn't produce in the island and uh, going to Mass. That's, that's when we were small, like, other, other than that... We would have went to Arnmore a lot, and the other small islands in Ishfree and Ether and uh, those places when we were growing up playing a bit of football. Inishfree used to be a very good island. Of course, Arnmore was a big island. It was like our mainland, you know. Islanders were very close. Islanders are still very close, you know. It was a serious thing that, you know, Islander, Islanders were looked down on, you know, and, and I don't know why. We can we can stuck the islands more or less, you know. Went to the mainland when we had to, just that, that was the way it was. There was no outboard engines going that time or anything like that. Everything was rowing or sailing, you know, so everybody was very fit and very healthy and very fairly strong, you know. Oh, hi. I'd tell you, the entertainment, if you didn't get to the mainland or to Arnmore, was Cayley. And the, uh, the school was always cleared for the Cayley and... Of course, the best, uh, there were more people on an Ishree Island, just a bit south of us there, uh, than there were in Rutland. So uh, it was brilliant to go up there, you know. There was about 25 families living up there. And uh, even that's even when, even when um, the islands were dying out, it would have been uh, one of the last of the small islands, you know. So, no, plenty of entertainment. And, and um, the islands were... Uh, you know, as we were growing up, you know, we yeah, didn't matter really about whether, you know, we would go to the mainland, go away to dances and that, and didn't really, we never really worried about what time we got back, you know, if it was too bad you didn't get in, you stayed somewhere, you know, and uh, in the next day or something like that, you know. The story of Rutland is similar to the stories of lots of other small islands off the Irish coast. So we took the ferry to Arranmore an island that people still live on, but where the population is in decline. To meet Mary Theresa, who's originally from the smaller island Inishfree, and Andrew, who's from Arranmore. Okay, I'm Mary Theresa Gallagher Duffy from Inishfree. I grew up on Inishfree Island and left it when I was 15 to go to work in Burdenport. There was no work on the island. Uh, later, emigrated to England when I was 17 and a half. And came back in 65, 66 to live on Ironmore Island because I married somebody from here. But life in Anishree was very good growing up. We didn't have television. We didn't even have electric light. We had gas light, gas fridge, um, cooked on open fire and gas. But again, when my gra- I tell my grandchildren that now, they'd say, Mom, 
you must have been so bored, but we were never bored because we had made our own fun. We had our chores to do when we came from school. After that, you were went to play. At night time, we visited all each other's houses and mainly playing cards, playing games in the daytime, playing cards at night. But we were never bored. And really, I suppose, could say that we were self-sufficient on the island. Um, my father would have set all the crops and then he would fish and they also stored fish for the winter. And um, my mother used to get these huge cuts of meat. She would get them from Dublin and a few of them would go together and divide them up. And that was saved as well. Everything was really cured, more or less. But mainly it would be um, fish, I suppose, most of the time. Even winkles. My mother was great at making a, a dish, a lovely sauce with winkles. And, and again, for dessert, it was from the sea, carrakeen moss, which you may had from the sea. And that was done into a dessert and then a bowl of jelly with it. We only had dessert on a Sunday. And like that, my mother baked the bread every day. It would be a plain scone for every day. But on a Sunday, she always made a big special scone with currants and eggs, you know? And that was our treat on a Sunday. I remember being in Maggie's and Fatty's. And I always remember your father and mother laughing. Remember when the, the light was going into Rutland? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had to sign up so many houses. Right, yeah. It was going through Rutland to come right, to yeah. our more. Right, yeah. That so many houses had to sign for it for them to get it. Right. And they were your mother and father would be the first to want it. And yeah. Mickey and Nancy and they went to Faddy, somebody went to Faddy. Ah Faddy says they say it's very bad for your eyesight. And and them reading with a lamp. Ah, that's right. A tilly yeah. lamp yeah, or a small right, lamp. You used to have a lamp a lamp. A lamp that's well anyway. Right, yeah, no. Yeah, Faddy right. says to say that electric's very yeah, bad for yeah. your eyesight. Oh they wouldn't have it. And they wouldn't have it. I always yeah. remember. And it wasn't money that was, you know they could afford oh, it or of course right. they could yeah, afford yeah, it. Yeah. But again, it was simple, simple life. Simple life. Yeah. This Inishfree, the Heathery Island, is not an island without people. But of course, like all our small islands, it is losing its young folk. There are still a dozen families living here, 50 men and women and children, who make their bread and butter by farming at 200-odd sparse acres and maybe by taking some lobsters from the sea around them. It's a fairly close-knit community here on Inishfree. They're an independent little group whose homes cluster together as if sheltering from the Atlantic winds. They have one telephone on the island. Maybe it's just me being from an island, but I think it's a closer community on an island and everyone looks out for one another. And it did then and everyone helps one another. You don't have any qualms about going here for help to your next door neighbour or that's probably all changed a bit more now, but at that time, everyone was so helpful with one another and uh, looked out for each other. My father had, he was the only one at that time with a motorboat, so he would have to go for the doctor. So it could be quite a while uh, before you'd, you know, it would take probably an hour by the time the phone. 
There was only one phone on the island in Inishbree, and that was the post office. So if you phoned from the post office for the doctor, he'd meet you at Burtonport, and he'd come over. Babies were born at home then. The midwife came from Burtonport, Nurse McCall, and she did all the home deliveries. I think later, later years then, like, we all went to hospital. Although I had one home birth, it wasn't planned. It just happened and I couldn't get out. The weather was bad. Oh, there's a strong sense in the 19th century that these islanders are living a way of life that cannot be sustained uh, because of modernisation. And I mean that in a very general sense. I mean, if you consider the late 1820s, there were 65,000 people working in fishing in Ireland. By the 1920s, there were only 1,000 full-time fishermen in the whole of the country. And you could see the decline in fortunes. Obviously, the famine has an impact. It affects some islands more than others. Um, but it's not just the famine. It's migration. It's modernisation. It's the arrival of fishing on a commercial scale that the small-time fishermen simply could not compete with. It's remarkable to read the population figure for the offshore islands in the census of 1841 because it stands at 34,219 people who inhabited 211 offshore islands. By 1991, the population of the offshore islands has dipped to just under 10,000. It's just over 9,500. By 2011, it had dipped again to under 9,000. And you're talking about in the region of 58 to 60 islands being populated. So it is overall the story of a very dramatic population decline. But it's really in the 50s that you can begin to see the full scale of the evacuations and the, I suppose the consequences of long-term depopulation. And in that sense, the islands mirror the broader national story because there, there was a lot of concern in the 1950s about the stripping away of Ireland's population and whether it had a future, the scale of the exodus. I mean, half a million people emigrate from a very small island in the 1950s. That's Ireland. And of course, people were leaving the islands as well. Um, and you can see in 1948 the evacuation of Inish Murray. You can see the evacuation of the Baskets in 1953. You can see the evacuation of Inish Ark towards the very end of, of that decade. Rutland Island is another island that becomes deserted for the same reasons. And you can see state files relating to the islands because sometimes government departments compiled, compiled reports on the general state of the islands and there's a reference to, to Rutland Island in the 1940s. Not having a post office, not having a shop, not having a priest, and you can gradually see how the islands, which at one point had all of these things, are losing these kind of pillars of sustainable community life one by one. The Pope goes, the post office goes, the school goes, the priest goes, the people go. Remember, and, and if you remember in Escara, the people left in '55. No yes, left it there. I remember left, seeing the boats going out, loaded yeah, up with stuff. That's right. And that was the that was the start of it, really. Yeah. You know, although people went gradually, yes. because there was nothing. Yeah. Yeah, there was no work or well, and young people. 
The trouble was in Inishfree was there was no young people no. left to man the boats. Yeah. And I remember at the time, when De Valera was, was he, he, he was a, a teacher at the time, mm. and I remember my father getting a letter. This would be about 50, 52 maybe, right mm. that. And do you remember they were going to have the table to read an important letter? Oh, yes. And he gathered us all around. And this letter was asking him to think about promising a house and farm in County Meath. Uh-huh. And all he had to do was leave the island. Yeah. It wasn't going to cost him any money. All mm-hmm. he had to do was leave the island. And he read the letter, and nobody said a word until it was over. Mm-hmm. And he read the two answers. No way. No. We weren't going to leave an island to go to live in, and, you know. Well, that was all the Inniscara people were offered as well. Yeah, that's right. Homes in yeah. County Meath. They were trying to get the people out of Out in the middle of the bog. Yeah. They got no yeah. help whatsoever. No. But they, no they, they were wanting to get people out of the islands, and yet they weren't putting any money into the islands. Less than a fortnight ago, Donegal County Council offered ten families from Tory houses here in this new council estate at Falcara on the mainland. Now, those involved had actually decided to apply for houses as far back as 1974, when, in conditions far worse than this, Tory Island lay cut off for eight weeks, without food, without mail. Fifty-one people are directly involved in the offer, but the decision whether they go or whether they stay involves all the people of Tory Island. The atmosphere is that, uh, you know, that's not good at all, definitely not good, and it's a very, very... Un- we have very unhappy uh, times, indeed. Father, do you think you're the priest of what is a dying community? No way would I entertain the idea that it's a dying island. But if the government persist in their policy that's manifested through the actions of the county council, then this might be so. I suppose if the people leave Tory, they will become integrated with the people on the, on the mainland and adopt the ways of the people on the mainland. And so, the way they live here, you see, they're all very neighbourly and kind to each other. And, but you know yourself when you're living on the mainland now, a lot of that is gone. You're listening to Leaving the Island on Documentary on News Talk. The relationship between the mainland and the islands and the islanders is fraught. It's constantly fraught. And there are a number of different reasons for that. There was quite a concerted effort in the late 19th century to assist those in the congested districts, as they were known, those areas of the country uh, where the land was poor, uh, where uh, there were very few job opportunities. The government created the Congested Districts Board. It's there from 1891. It does target islands in the sense that it's it's prepared to to build harbours and piers and provide uh, better housing. Um, stone roofs, for example, on the houses, um, and to look at supporting the fishing industry. 
The difficulty after independence is that that congested districts board is wound up and it's not replaced with an identifiable authority that has responsibility for the islands. Islands doesn't appear in a government department title until the 1990s. So that's a big problem. A lot of the time the islands fall between the stools of different government departments, whether it's local government or Department of Finance or Department of Taoiseach or the Land Commission or the Office of Public Works. Who the hell is responsible for the islands remains an unanswered question throughout these decades from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way up. So it's not that there's no support, but there is no coherent, consistent response to island difficulties. And the islanders get understandably fed up. There are constant disputes about them not paying rates. The reason islanders won't pay rates is because they're not getting the same services as the mainlanders, and they demand the same services on the grounds that they too are Irish citizens and should not be treated uh, differently. Central government had a different response, often asking this question, is it feasible to provide the same services on the islands as it is on the mainland, given the difficulties in relation to access and transport? Islands often come into national uh, debate arising out of tragedies. You had a terrible tragedy, the Cleggan disaster in 1927 when 44 fishermen were killed in one night, many of them from the islands. You have the Ardenmore disaster in 1935 when 19 people are killed on one night. The islands then come into the national consciousness, they become national news. For 50 years, Paddy Gallagher has lived with a recurring nightmare. On the night of November the 9th, 1935, he lost his father, four brothers and two sisters in the tragedy that became known as the Aaron Moore disaster. All but one of the 20 people in the small open boat were drowned. Many of them were on the last leg of their journey home from Scotland, where they had picked potatoes for the season. Their relations, including Paddy Gallagher, had taken the boat over to Burton Port to collect them. Does it stay in your mind all the time? Oh, all the time. I never leave my mind. Sight I seen that night was something terrible. For all the deceptive calmness shown on the pet days of autumn, the waters along the northwest coast retain a treacherous nature. In three separate incidents during the past decade, a total of 15 fishermen were claimed by the seas. The islands then come into the national consciousness, they become national news. But the same issues are arising. Who is responsible for transport, for access, for education, for trying to provide them with a, a decent way of life? I mean, they do fall back on their own uh, resources and they're often forced to because they just don't get enough support. And at the heart of that, of course, is the unmanageable sea. The sea is the most savage force in the, the lives of the islanders and it dictates so much. Uh, and it does create what Liam O'Flaherty, a native of the Iron Islands, described as a restless anxiety in the minds of the islanders because it makes everything so precarious. It can be beautiful and beguiling, but it can also be devastating. And they have to deal with that. And the government's response to that is often, look, we can't take on the sea. We can't legislate for the sea. And in that sense, they often have a get-out clause when it comes to not framing uh, ambitious island policies. The state could have done a lot more for the islands. I've no doubt about that. Now, there are numerous examples you could give of perhaps uh, misplaced priorities. Take evacuation, for example. If you're evacuating main, if you're evacuating islanders and putting them on the mainland, you have to provide them with housing. 
you have an obligation there. Sometimes the Land Commission took on that responsibility, uh, sometimes it refused to. But to take the example of Inish Murray, Island off Sligo. Inish Murray was evacuated in 1948. It cost £10,000 to rehouse those families. One of the arguments that was being made at the time by the islanders was that if that £10,000 had been spent on improving the infrastructure of the island, putting in a new harbour, making it more accessible, trying to do something for you know, island industry, that that would have been a better use of the money and it, it would have made the population more sustainable. An alternative argument is that the battle was already lost. Young people did not see a future on the island, whether or not there was a new harbour or there were you know, fishing opportunities, whatever it was. So that argument was, was always there as well. But there's interesting correspondence in the 1950s, particularly from Bishop Cornelius Lucy, who was Bishop, Catholic Bishop of Cork and Ross, and he had responsibility, as he saw it, for the, the islands off the coast of Cork. And he wrote a letter to Eamon de Valera, who was Taoiseach at the time. This is in 1957. And he said they deserve to be saved for the nation. And the argument he was making was that this, these island people and these island problems, they can't just be seen as material problems. This is a cultural issue as well. Some of those islands are repositories of beautiful Irish speaking. And of course, this was something that Singh had long before seen on the Aran Islands in particular. It's the reason he went there in 1898. And he was making the point that they need to be saved for the nation. De Valera arranged to meet him and called in, and De Valera's officials were giving him all this information on the fact that the Cork Islanders hadn't paid their rates. It was back to this issue uh, of, of, of it not being feasible for them to be demanding uh, services uh, if they weren't prepared to uh, take their responsibilities seriously. So you're going around in circles a lot of the time. There were also numerous appeals in relation to island schools because... Schools could only get teachers if they could sustain a certain number of pupils. And, of course, that's doubly difficult for, for, for the islands. And the Department of Education was frequently asked to make exceptions for the islands because of their particular circumstances. And most of the time it wouldn't because it had this rubric and it had this rule book and it stuck to it. So there is a rigidity there. There isn't much flexibility. Granted, you're dealing with a time when there wasn't much money in the state coffers, but there should have been a hell of a lot more done because the island population is not that big. There could have been an attempt to try uh, and do much more to identify the need for a coherent island policy. That shouldn't have been beyond the ability of native governments after the 1920s. Quite the opposite. They could have made the point that we have something unique here and we need to support that unique way of life. Unfortunately, they couldn't find a way of living on the islands. Um, and, you know, that, that was always going to be, I suppose, the reality, um, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, when there wasn't the traditional employment in, in island industry, whether it was kelp or it was sea fishing. A lot of, of the islanders um, tend to have to leave the islands to find a sustainable living. There's a very strong tradition of Donegal Islanders going to work, particularly in post-war England. The great infrastructural projects and, and the underground and, and the tunnelling that was going on. The Aran Moor Islanders were brilliant tunnellers uh, in, in Britain uh, in, in the 20th century. So they do find a role for themselves in various places. 
in my time it was all about fishing and my father's time most of the men went merchant shipping we went fishing uh, there was no other jobs there was no other jobs on the island uh, everything, everything was, was uh, it, it used to be a merchant port way back years and years ago but that, that had all gone couldn't wait to get away to, to um, we heard, heard when we were on the mainland then especially all these big stories about the money that was being made in Scotland and England and tunnels and all this kind of stuff and, and um, you see these fellas coming home you know, spending money and well-dressed and, you know, showing off a bit, I suppose. But uh, you couldn't wait to get away, you know. So I, I was no different than anybody else. I wanted to get over there and see what it was like and, and uh, stayed over there for a while and d- done different jobs. But, nah, I, uh, I would never have settled in it, you know. Got married over there and all. But but not, I don't think I would have settled in it. I came back and went to fish here and came... Uh, well, I went to live in Killy Beggs then, you know. To move to the mainland, for me, at, at that age, at 15, it was, I thought it was wonderful. Then two years later, to go to England, um, oh, I thought it was just great. But then, as you get older, you realise there's no place like home and it's good to come back to it, yeah. you know? But yeah, it was, of course, a big, wide world for us, uh, especially going to England. Um, but uh, I think after a while, you just appreciate the things you have at home. I found then when I came to Arnmore, you know, there was, they had much more and they had shops in here, which we didn't have in any, we had no shop in Innisfree. We had a school, right, in Innisfree. We had no shops. So we had to go over to the mainland to Mass on a Sunday and my parents had to go shopping to Burtonport. Usually they did a big shop every two weeks in the winter, uh, maybe once a week in, in the summer, but it would be every two weeks in the winter. Then when I came across, came back to Arnmore to live, I found, yeah, they did have, there was more facilities here. They had the church and they had shops and even mobile shops. There would have been one quite good sizable shop and then the others were mobile shops. But of course later that went to a couple of more shops opening up as years went on. Um, I moved back in 1967 with my first child, who was only seven weeks old, from London. And we built a new home here, and um, I have six more kids, so I reared my family here. Sadly, they are all gone to the mainland now, but again, that's because of work. They don't have the work here that they're educated for. My name is Andrew Early, and I come from Arnmore. Howard Island, I, I, I shouldn't say this, but Howard Island is dead too. And my time when I was running around, going to school, there was 1,400 of a population in Arnold Island. Today there's 400. School was all right, we, we knew we had to do it, you know. Now, in every house there, there were seven and eight and nine kids. And I could stand over there, but that house is there on the top of the hill, and count about 60 kids coming over that road, going to school. We went to school. Went to nine o'clock. We had to take a shot of turf with us. And if you didn't take a shot of turf, you got a slap. But if you were cute enough, when you got the back teacher, when you would have turned the other way, you'd walk up and you'd give the box a kick. And he would think that you were out throwing a shot in you. <laughs> That's why you were a cute one, you know. <laughs> but anyway, we would stay then and then we got lunch. 
they would get a bag of bread in for the school and they would get picked two, maybe a girl and a boy, to go out and cut the slice of bread and butter them and jam them. And you got a slice of bread for your tea. And they made tea that day, or co coca, and that was it till you came home. And then you came home to a salt urn or to a potato. That's the way we lived. In my time, there was nobody going away to college because there was no money to put them to college, you know. Because that's when you're 14, you stop school in your car. Go away. Your class then is a worker. You wear, that's it. What a worker. You go to the cafe open and you get up in the morning at 5 o'clock and you, you dug so much potatoes for the, the early public holiday. And then you go back into the party. You get some kind of breakfast then. So you lay on the bed then for a while, maybe 2 o'clock, you go out again. You'd work then till 6 or 7 in the evening. And uh, put them on the bags and put them up in the lorry and ship them away to the town. Do you know what a tatty hawker is? Well, it's a Scottish word to describe a potato picker. And it's used specially to describe the Irish workers who spend their summers and autumns taking in the potato crop in the lowlands of Scotland. The job of the tatty hawker has always been a pretty tough one, but it hasn't been made any easier by the conditions under which they're expected to live. Conditions that have improved very little in the past hundred years. When I went to Scotland, oh, it felt terrible. I felt lonely leaving home, you know. I was very young too, I was only about, I was about 14. Their mammy at that time, you know, they were going over, you should call them the, tat, the tatty hawk. It was a certain time of the year, yeah, they'd go over there to dig the potatoes. And they should be going to school, going over there. So to get the potatoes. Scotland. And they should be at school. Now, you know, their, their mammy was how she felt, but they had no choice, they had no money. But whatever they would get, they would send it home to their mammy and daddy. And maybe their dad was fishing or tying into something. But all they were all very sad. Immigration was terrible. Immigration was terrible. You're down there, days at that pier down there yet? Yeah. Waving and crying and broken hearted. Well, there was families leaving, of course, all down the years, but 1955, in the scare of people all left, and, and if you, they had a bad, bad storm there. And then the scare of people left first, and after that it was just complete. Everybody, everybody left, you know. And that's why I got away before, before weirdly. I was in England when our own family left. They left in 1960, uh, and I, I, I didn't come home for that. I probably done that deliberately. When I came back, they were living in, in Burtonport. Ah, jeez, it was different. Uh, it was different, it was fine, though, but you see, no matter what you want to do, if you wanted a packet of cigarettes, if you wanted a packet of sweets, you had to go on a boat and row to the mainland for it, or sail to the mainland for it. And on the mainland, you just walk to a shop. Uh, and and, 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 and uh, uh, the older people found that brilliant. Uh, their big thing was being able to walk to Mass, you know. They used to, you see, they used to, that time, they would go out to confession on a Saturday evening. And they had to pass from 12 o'clock the night before to receive Holy Communion the next day. 
And of course they had a they had a fast from twelve o'clock, then come out in a boat next day and walk up to the chapel. It was about a mile or something, slightly over a mile. What a mass received. And there was no cafes or restaurants or anything to go, in, to go into that time. They walked back down again, got into their boat and rode back to the island. You know, to, to, all the islands were the same. And that's when they got their first cup of tea from the Saturday night, you know. They, you know but they didn't mind, they were very religious, do you know. It was better for them. All the young people had gone. It was only old people that was left, you know, the older people that were left on the island. And if anything happened then, they were in trouble. My name's Patricia. I was born and brought up in Burtonport. My father's from Rutland. I remember Hugh and Bridget, who were a brother and sister, who lived in Rutland a long time after everybody else had gone. Life must have been hard for them because the others left because it was they were getting older and the younger people had gone. So it was getting more difficult to be in and out. They had no outboard engines, so they, you know, they had to go in and out for their groceries and all their necessities. They had to row with oars in and out. So Bridget and Hugh lived on their own in this isolated island. Beautiful island, beautiful place, and I'm sure that's what kept them there for as long as they were. I suppose life got more difficult because they were getting older. Bridget and Hugh were the subject of a news report in November 1963 when a fisherman made an unexpected visit to Rutland and found them stranded and without enough provisions. This resulted in them being taken to the mainland, in Hugh being hospitalised and Bridget vowing that they wouldn't return. They did go back, however, and they eventually left again for good in the 1970s. Bridget and Hugh were the last people to leave the island. They made the decision to come to the mainland and they got accommodation. They had to wait until a house was found for them. So they lived in Burtonport and I remember going to see them after they came out and they seemed to adjust. They would have known most of the people around and while Hugh was able to do the shopping and all that he did, and when he wasn't, people called in, see did they need anything. But I'm sure it was a big change for them. They were surrounded by people. It wasn't what they were used to. When the families start leaving, the full families would leave the island. You know, they'd just walk down to the pier with them. They were taken out. A few people went to, to the mainland with them, and that, and that was it, you know, for sad times. But... It doesn't matter what island you leave, whether it be the Blaskets and the Shmurry, 
uh, you know, and it's the whole, it doesn't an island's an island, you know, and the community, are, uh, you know, are just as close in the small island as they are on the big island, in fact, closer, you know, so it's not easy leaving any of them, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy. I like to get back in there now. I, I look forward to it. Uh, Any time, it doesn't winter or summer, but summertime especially, I, I look forward to going back in. I don't know what what's about, but it's a different world in here, do you know. And, and it, uh, well, it always takes me back to you know when I was when I was smaller. But you know, there's no cars, no noise. Uh, the only noise here is the noise of sea and birds. You know, uh, gulls, seagulls, and, and and all the different types of birds that, that's about here. Do you know. The West Side Island is all, you know, all this beach, sand dunes and that, they've all changed. You know, well, that's what sand does. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of change, a lot of it changed like that, but it's still worth it, you know. Leaving the Island was produced by Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle of Bureau Productions. The programme was supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. To listen back to this or any other News Talk documentary, go to newstalk.com forward slash documentary on Newstalk.